The playwright, Thomas Kidd, died in August 1594, possibly as a result of his arrest and torture the previous year. Pursuing the anonymous author of an offensive doggerel poem found posted on the walls of the Dutch church, the Privy Council had offered a 100 crown reward for information and authorised its officers to apprehend every suspect their investigations produced. If the suspects didn't talk, they were to put them to the torture in Bridewell, and by the extremity thereof, draw them to discover their knowledge. In this strikingly theatrical phrasing, we find what Charles Nicholl has called the raw tones of the Elizabethan police state. The poem in question was 53 lines of iambic pentameter and was signed Tamburlaine. It was the latest in a series of libelous writings containing not only anti-Semitic rhetoric, but threats of violence against worshippers in the Dutch Protestant church. Originally arrested on the 12th of May 1593 in connection to this investigation, Kidd's fortunes worsened considerably when papers seized from his lodgings were found to contain not threats against the Dutch, but a suggestion of atheism. Panicking, Kidd told his torturers that the documents were in fact the possession of his roommate and fellow playwright for Lord Strange's men, Christopher Marlowe. In hindsight, a conspicuously obvious suspect, as Marlowe is credited with popularising iambic pentameter, and was of course the author of a two-part play called Tamburlaine. If, as it has been suggested, Kidd's early death was the result of the pains and undeserved tortures he had suffered the year before, it was a miserably ironic fate for a writer whose best-known play had explored the relationship between public justice and personal revenge. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be discussing The Spanish Tragedy by Thomas Kidd. Critical consensus dates this play to around 1587, so a couple of years before Shakespeare's first plays appear on the scene. The Spanish Tragedy, or Hieronimo is Mad Again, is credited with inventing the popular genre of revenge play and some of the conventions Kidd establishes here can be seen in later Elizabethan and Jacobean plays like Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, Hamlet, Middleton's Revenger's Tragedy and John Marston's Antonio's Revenge. Set during Spain's conquest of Portugal, it tells the story of Hieronimo, a Spanish knight marshal driven to madness by the brutal murder of his son and the subsequent bloody revenge he enacts on the murderers. But Hieronimo's revenge is only part of a wider revenge story set in motion by the ghost Don Andrea. The presence of Don Andrea adds a mythological frame to the play, a literal frame as Andrea watches events unfold on the sidelines, accompanied by the personification of revenge. Together they serve as a chorus to Kidd's tragedy, revenge promising Andrea he will see the author of his death deprived of life. In his own life, Andrea was in love with Belle Imperia, niece of the King of Spain, a love that they kept secret due to Andrea's inferior social status. He was killed in battle by the son of Portugal's political leader, the Viceroy. This son's name is Baltazar, he is captured and taken back to Spain where he is well treated. In fact, the King of Spain sees an opportunity to smooth diplomatic relations with the conquered Portuguese by marrying his niece, Belle Imperia, with Baltazar. Baltasar luckily has fallen in love with Bellimperia and befriended her brother, Lorenzo. What Baltasar doesn't know is that he killed the man that Bellimperia was in love with, Andrea. She now wants her revenge on him and rejects his advances. Instead, 
partnering off with Horatio, one of Andrea's friends. However, the devious Lorenzo and Baltasar react by killing Horatio, hanging his body in his family's garden, where his mother Isabella and father Hieronimo find him. The distraught parents in their nightclothes, woken by screams and discovering the gruesome remains of their son, is one of the most famous images from the play. As Molly Smith has written, Horatio's body, hanged and mutilated before a full house, takes precedence over Don Andrea, whose death has been narrated rather than witnessed. We'll talk a lot about the tension between what is seen in this play and what is said. In the second half of the play, we see the murderer Lorenzo covering his tracks by arranging the deaths of various witnesses and accomplices, Hieronimo becoming increasingly mad, and the ghost of Don Andrea expressing frustration at not seeing revenge performed against his killer, but rather the miseries and deaths of friends. This supernatural figure, the personification of revenge, tells him in response, Thou talkst of harvest when the corn is green, the end is crown of every work well done. The sickle comes not till the corn be ripe. Be still, and ere I lead thee from this place, I'll show thee Baltasar in heavy case. Bellimperia, who was with Horatio in the garden when he was killed, has since been locked away by her brother Lorenzo. However, she manages to write Hieronimo a letter in her own blood, telling him what happened. So Hieronimo now knows the identity of his son's killers, but his attempts to seek justice by appealing to the king are thwarted by the clever Lorenzo. Denied legal means of satisfaction, Hieronimo and Bellimperia plan to stage a play for the court, casting themselves, Baltasar and Lorenzo. By swapping prop daggers for real ones, Bellimperia and Hieronimo are therefore able to stab the killers to death for real, in front of the king. Bellimperia then kills herself, Hieronimo gives us another memorably violent image by committing autoglossotomy, biting out his own tongue, and then kills the father of Bellimperia and Lorenzo before finally killing himself. The ghost of Don Andrea and Revenge wrap the play up, Andrea requesting that the villains be subject to further agonies in hell, and Revenge promising to begin their endless tragedy. Throughout the play, Kidd pits the judicial system against Hieronimo's revenge, dramatising the distinction made by Francis Bacon. Revenge is a kind of wild justice, Bacon wrote, which the more man's nature runs to, the more ought law to weed it out. For, as for the first wrong, it doth but offend the law, but the revenge of that wrong putteth the law out of office. By taking the law into your own hands, you assume a godlike right. Vengeance is mine, the Lord said, making it quite clear that it is not the office of mere mortals. Taking the role of Avenger has not only blasphemous implications, but it also raises questions to do with authorship. Who is it who gets to right wrongs and rewrite history? They wreck no laws that meditate revenge, says the Viceroy of Portugal. But the law is shown to be both arbitrary and corruptible, manipulated by the likes of Lorenzo to deny Hieronimo a fair hearing. Kidd's exploration of what is right versus what is just is one reason writers like Margaret Lamb have said that this is the first English tragedy to go beyond good and evil. And similarly, Gordon Braden has written that the play disputes with Marlowe's Tamburlaine a never-to-be-settled claim to be the first mature drama on the Elizabethan public stage. This maturity can be seen in the breadth of religious and literary reference the level of self-awareness bordering on what we would now call meta-theatricality, and the complexity of its verbal design, an underappreciated aspect of Kidd's craft that belies the critical commonplace, 
that Kidd was better at physical action than he was with language. On the contrary, writers like Jonas A. Barish credit Kidd with playing a crucial part in developing English theatre's rhetorical style into the dramatic, saying that Kidd used the figures of rhetoric not simply to decorate the action, but to articulate it. The earliest recorded performance of the Spanish tragedy is February 1592, where it is referred to by Philip Henslow as Geronimo and performed by the Lord Strange's men. However, this is not thought to be the first performance, as Henslow doesn't mark it as a new play, as was his custom. Edward Allain and Ben Jonson may well have played the title part of Hieronimo, and the greatest actor of the day, Richard Burbage, almost certainly did, as an anonymous eulogy to Burbage says, He's gone, and with him what a world are dead, which he revived, to be revived so no more. Young Hamlet, old Hieronimo, kind Lear, the grieved Moor, and more beside, that lived in him have now forever died. The contemporary fame of the Spanish tragedy is attested to by its appearance in a student play, Return from Parnassus, which features a scene with Will Kemp and Richard Burbage auditioning actors who read from both Shakespeare's Richard III and Kidd's Spanish tragedy. In 1605, so over a decade after Kidd's death, a first part of Hieronimo was published telling the story of the Portuguese wars and Andrea's death. The tragedy was performed around Europe in both English and translation, proving a particular hit with the Dutch. But while the play was famous, the playwright was not. In its time, the Spanish tragedy was better known and more referred to than Hamlet, and although named along with Shakespeare by Francis Mears as being one of the best contemporary English tragedy writers, Thomas Kidd's name became separated from his play. Over a century after his death, the Spanish tragedy was performed as an anonymous Elizabethan drama. Late in February 1668, Samuel Pepys watched a performance of the Spanish tragedy in Hatton Garden, recording in his diary that the play was a bad one and that he and his company had mocked the production's acting. Edel Semple comments that frustratingly then, Pepys has little to say on Kidd's play beyond its being bad. Moreover, this fleeting judgment is the last record of a performance of the play until the 20th century. It wasn't until the mid-18th century that the author's name was finally reunited with his play, when, as Semple says, scholars unearthed a comment by Thomas Haywood, which quoted Mr. Kidd in The Spanish Tragedy. This did not entirely resuscitate the play's critical reputation. If anything, as Shakespeare's posthumous legend grew, that of his contemporaries suffered. They didn't measure up to Shakespeare's psychological reality. The prevarications of Denmark's prince left plays like the Spanish tragedy looking unsophisticated and sensationalist. In 1815, August Wilhelm von Schlegel called the play inane. Even today, there exist many contemporary stage reviews and, in fact, podcasts about the Spanish tragedy that more or less describe the play as a failed Hamlet, an Elizabethan equivalent of a sleazy B-movie. On the 9th of November 1921 at Birkbeck College, the Spanish tragedy had its first performance since the 17th century. J.H. Lobben, director of that production, later wrote a verse prologue to the play, which showed that even he, the reviver of the Spanish tragedy, considered it to be of rather dubious merit. With all the crudeness of an earlier age, its artless borrowings from the Roman stage, its noisy rhetoric, its uncertain touch, hovering betwixt too little and too much, with verse unkindled by fire divine that glows and leaps in Marlowe's mighty line, our tragedy with more prosaic art 
finds a sure entrance to the human heart, tracing relentlessly without relief the poignant anguish of a father's grief. However, by this time, the fortunes of the play were beginning to change, as a couple of years before, T.S. Eliot had lectured on Kidd in 1918 to 1919, introducing him as the first important dramatist. Nowadays, there is a growing interest in Kidd, and joining me today to discuss the playwright and the Spanish tragedy is Darren Freebury-Jones, author of a new book called Shakespeare's Tutor, The Influence of Thomas Kidd. Darren is a Shakespeare lecturer in Stratford-upon-Avon. In 2016, he wrote a doctoral thesis on Kidd's influence on Shakespeare, and he is the associate editor for the first edition of Kidd's collected works since 1901. So I don't think I could have a better guest to rescue Kidd from Shakespeare's shadow and present him to you uh, in his own light. I started our conversation by asking Darren about the first responses to the Spanish tragedy. Well, uh... Looking at the performance records, I, I think it was uh, a veritable blockbuster, really. Um, really? <laughs> it, it really was. It, it was uh, It was like the Titanic of its era, the, the, the gone with the wind, <laughs> I think, um, of the Elizabethan period. Uh, mo most scholars tend to date the play around 1587. Um, mm. it, it could have theoretically been earlier than that. Uh, I don't think it was any later than 1587. Uh, and the play wasn't entered into the stationer's register until the 6th of October, 1592, uh, for a chap named Abel Jeffs. Uh, and Lord Strange's Men, the, the theatrical company Lord Strange's Men, revived the play that year. And they actually performed the tragedy on 16 occasions uh, at the Rose Playhouse between the 14th of March, 1592, and the 22nd of January. Uh, 1593. And then another uh, playing company, the Admiral's Men, uh, revived the play on the 7th of January 1597 and performed it 12 times, Ash, uh, up to the 19th <laughs> of July. Uh, and the, the records of uh, theatre impresario Philip Henslow uh, suggest that the play was on stage again uh, in 1601 and 1602. And we have evidence that English actors performed the play on tour in Germany uh, in 1601, uh, and both German and Dutch adaptations uh, of, of the Spanish tragedy uh, were made. So I, I think the frequent performances uh, attest to the play's popularity with audiences. There's, there's plenty of evidence it was popular with readers and printers, if you'd like me to elaborate on that as well, Ash. Yes, please, yeah. Well, well, we can see in the publication record for the Spanish tragedy uh, that the play was published in an undated quarto, uh, likely in 1592, mm. and publishers actually competed over the rights to, to kids' plays. So, you know, you think of a, a studio hit. Uh, I, yeah. I, I think, I think that's, uh, that conflict attests to the, to the popularity of the drama. Um, so, so Abel Jeffs, uh, and Edward White were responsible for publishing the first editions of the play. And Edward White actually published two other plays uh, that have long been associated uh, with kids, uh, Solomon and Poseidon and Adna Fabersham. Uh, and he also mm. owned the rights to the true chronicle history of King Lear, uh, another play with a long history of being attributed to kids. And Abel Jeffs was fined 10 shillings uh, for publishing an illegal edition of Arden of Faversham in 1592, 
And White was also fined for publishing an edition of the Spanish tragedy, uh, which seems to have belonged to Jeffs. And the, the wonderful scholar, uh, wonderful textual scholar uh, and kid scholar, Lucas Earn, notes that the quick succession of the Spanish tragedy, Solomon and Poseidon and Ardna Favisham is intriguing. And he speculates that the reason why these plays were published by the same stationer uh, around the same time may be that Kidd actually sold uh, Edward White the manuscripts. And so we, we have a reprint uh, of the Spanish tragedy in 1594 with a, a compromising credit to Abel Jeffs to be sold by Edward White. Uh, and on the 13th of August, 1599, uh, Jeffs transferred his copyrights uh, to the play to uh, William White, uh, who issued the third edition that year. And White's intern transferred the copyright to Thomas Pavia uh, on the 14th of August, 1600. And Pavia issued the fourth uh, quarter edition in 1602, uh, which is a very interesting edition uh, because it was uh, newly corrected, amended and enlarged with new editions of the painter's part uh, and others. And these editions amounted to around 320 lines in total. And that fourth quarter edition was reprinted in 1610, uh, as well as 1615 uh, in, in two editions, uh, two issues, uh, if I remember correctly. 1618, uh, two issues again in 1623, uh, the year of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio, and 1633. And there's actually evidence of an edition preceding the uh, 1592 surviving quarto uh, that, that was registered to, to Jeffs, uh, and a revised version by Ben Johnson, uh, for which he was paid in 1601 uh, and 1602, which very few scholars now believe are represented in the 1602 edition. And just thinking about this play in terms of popularity, uh, and just to elaborate on that 1602 edition a little bit, I, I think what we see in these editions is an update of an old blockbuster. I, I called it a blockbuster earlier, uh, which would draw in new audiences who, who could take refuge uh, in seeing an old classic, uh, but also offering something slightly different. So a revised version of kids play could entertain audiences in different ways. And, and the offer of a new spin on a popular play uh, could entice audiences to attend renewed performances. I mean, think of, think of changes like um, added scenes and special effects to classic movies uh, like in 1997 with the Star Wars trilogy, of course. Um, mm -hmm. And viewers will often attend, and did in that instance, uh, cinema screenings uh, of these uh, updated um, films, or, or they'll buy such adaptations when they're available on, on mediums like Blu-ray. Uh, and and just, to, just to finish off my, um, my rather long answer to your, to your question, Ash, um, I think another indicator of the play's popularity can be seen in contemporary allusions. So, so the play was parodied by dramatists like Thomas Nash, uh, Thomas Haywood, uh, John Marston, Thomas Decker, Ben Johnson, Nathan Field, Francis Beaumont, uh, James Shirley, uh, Shakespeare uh, as well. Well, there, there's a, a, a database of plays uh, developed by Martin Muller, which is called Shakespeare, His Contemporaries. 
Uh, and that database records large numbers of repeated phrases between kids' tragedy and 16 plays by different authors. Uh, and interestingly, um, six of those 16 plays are actually by Shakespeare. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, that thank you so much for summarising that. That was brilliant. I'd never thought of it before as the sort of the extended edition, you know, <laughs> come come back for some more type uh, the revenge. type thing. <laughs> the <Come> revenge, <laughs> yeah. The opening lines of the Spanish tragedy are spoken by the ghost of Don Andrea. When this eternal substance of my soul did live imprisoned in my wanton flesh, each in their function serving others' need, I was a courtier in the Spanish court. As Darren mentioned there, one of the playwrights who parodied Kid was Francis Beaumont, whose play The Night of the Burning Pestle features a mock heroic death scene where the errant grocer Rafe says, When I was mortal, this my cost of corpse did lap up figs and raisins in the strand. Here, writes Edel Semple, the absurd demise of a lowly grocer's apprentice and the scatological wit, Rafe describes himself as a constipated cadaver, are used to poke fun at the Spanish tragedy's lofty rhetoric and to undercut the seriousness and permanence of death, thereby deflating, in Semple's words, the bombast and pretensions of Andrea's speech. And it certainly is a bombastic speech, one that declares the play part of the epic literary tradition, as Andrea recounts his passage through a Greco-Roman underworld. We also see straight away the play's concentration on theatricality itself. An actor walks on stage and in his opening lines discards his former role. This apparition, calling itself a soul, is not of the same substance, it says, as the deceased courtier from Spain. A distinction made only more intriguing by the contemporary reference to roles in the Elizabethan theatre as shades or shadows. If we shadows have offended, says Puck at the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream. So the performed part, whether it's Puck or Andrea's ghost, can be imagined as a kind of soul, passing from body to body, actor to actor, between times, between languages even, all while maintaining certain fundamental characteristics. With this speech, and later as Andrea watches the subsequent action unfold from the sidelines, we are being invited to wonder what happens to these souls when they are outside of the context of the play proper. Andrea's ghost gives us some idea describing what has happened to him since his death in battle. How he descended straight to pass the flowing stream of Acheron, but churlish Charon, only boatman there, said that, my rites of burial not performed, I might not sit amongst his passengers. One of the most consistent elements of ghost mythology is the rule that the spirit of an unburied body cannot rest. So Charon, the ferryman to the underworld, rejects passage, leaving Andrea in a kind of limbo. Some critics have wondered whether Kidd presents in the Spanish tragedy a vision of purgatory, purgatory both in this passage through the underworld and by extension forcing Andrea to sit through the events of the play, unable to interfere. By recounting its death and afterlife to the audience, Andrea's ghost performs a kind of literal spiritual confession, which along with the purgatorial theme and Kidd's arrest for heresy, has given some writers like Thomas Rist the suspicion that Kidd had Catholic sympathies. This afterlife, however, is not Christian at all, but as I say, based on Greco-Roman mythology. And once back in the real world, Don Horatio, who is Andrea's friend, has given his fallen comrade a proper funeral, Andrea's spirit is given passage by Charon and met with the three judges of the dead, Minos, Iacus, and Radamanth, 
These three wander aloud where Andrea's eternal destination should be, and we see from its personage and divisions that Kid's underworld is based largely on Virgil's underworld in Book 6 of the Aeneid, with, however, one notable deviation. Between the fields of love and war on one side and the deepest hell on the other, Andrea tells us, I trod the middle path. As Lorna Hudson writes, this third way, Kid's invention, for in Book 6 of the Aeneid there are only two ways, the right to Elysium, the left to Tartarus, corresponds to the notion of purgatory as a third place, the locus of torment not as damnation, but as trial and purification. However, as other critics like Tom Rutter have said, there is no neat correspondence between the three ways and the three dwelling places of heaven, hell and purgatory. For starters, the third way leads Andrea not to a forlorn celestial waiting room, as we might imagine, but a stately tower housing Pluto and his wife, Proserpine. It is the latter who gives Andrea his doom, and forthwith, he says, revenge she rounded thee in the ear, and bade thee lead me through the gates of horn, where dreams have passage in the silent night. No sooner had she spoke, but we were here, I wot not how, in twinkling of an eye." At the beginning of his journey, the ghost describes how from life to death he made passage through his wounds. Uh, we have seen his subsequent Virgilian passage through the underworld, and finally he passes through Gates of Horn. Gates of Horn, this is a classical illusion first found in Homer's Odyssey, where through polished ivory past deluding lies, while true visions through transparent horn arise. So if we take this illusion in earnest, it has a very significant bearing on the play that follows. Kidd is signalling that the subsequent action is a true vision. It is not some kind of afterlife entertainment. The character of Revenge responds to Andrea, telling him, Thou art arrived where thou shalt see the author of thy death, Don Balthazar, the prince of Portingal, deprived of life by Belimperia. Here sit we down to see the mystery and serve for chorus in this tragedy. Now, Kidd was a follower of the Roman playwright Seneca, whose plays were notable for their formal inventiveness and graphic violence. And while in plays like Agamemnon, Seneca used both ghosts and choruses, critics like Howard Baker have suggested that the ghost and revenge aren't actually Senecan imports, but taken from medieval tragedies. G.K. Hunter expands on this, saying that Andrea and Revenge's departure through the Gates of Horn and their arrival at the Spanish court can be seen as dramatic equivalents to the introductory sequences of medieval dream allegory. The play may be viewed in this sense as what Andrea dreams, as an allegory of perfect justice. The gods are indeed just, and now you shall see how their justice works out. We are promised a mathematical perfection of total recompense, where justice and revenge are identical. From this point of view, the human beings who appear in Andrea's dream, the characters of the play, scheming, complaining and hoping, are not to be taken by the audience as the independent and self-willed individuals they suppose themselves to be, but in fact only as the puppets of a predetermined and omnicompetent justice that they, the characters, cannot see and never really understand. But we, watching the whole stage, must never lose sight of this piece of knowledge. So in Hunter's reading, the vision Andrea's ghost is treated to, through the gates of Horn, the play itself, is not true in the sense of being what actually happened, but true in the sense of being right, what happens is just. When Andrea later expresses impatience and demands to know when he will finally see justice performed, when he will finally see Balthasar, his killer, killed, 
Revenge tells him, you talk of harvest when the corn is green. A reminder not only to Andrea, but to ourselves, the wider audience, that with justice will come satisfaction, as long as it is allowed to ripen. Just just for anyone who's not, not as familiar with Thomas Kidd, where does he... What sort of contemporary is he to Shakespeare? Is he a bit older? Uh, where is he in his career as Shakespeare's making his first steps in plays like Henry VI? Uh, well, well, the Spanish tragedy is Kidd's first surviving drama. Uh, and like I said, that, mm. that's usually dated um, 1587. So, so Kidd is a dramatic predecessor of Shakespeare's. Um, but mm. if we go along with uh, Martin Wiggins's argument that Shakespeare's career, dramatic writing career, probably starts around 1591. Um, Kid Kid was on the scene at the same time as Shakespeare, um, and, and I would suggest yeah. that they they actually collaborated on certain plays. And, I, and I'm pretty convinced that Shakespeare likely acted in some of Kid's plays, um, potentially for mm. Pembroke's Men. That that's the playing company I'm inclined to. Um, to assign to Shakespeare as, as an actor. So I think Shakespeare would have learned a great deal from acting in kids' plays and absorbing that phraseology uh, and learning from kid in terms of uh, verse cadence uh, uh, and registers uh, and dramatic devices. So, so they were, I mean, kid died in, what was it, 1594, I think? Um, Cornelia, mm. his last play is dated 1593. So, so their, their careers, overlaps slightly the first couple of years uh, of Shakespeare's writing career. Uh, but I think mm. kids' influence on, on Shakespeare endured throughout most of uh, Shakespeare's career, actually. The Shakespeare play with the most apparent connections to kids' tragedy is Hamlet, featuring, as it does, the appearance of a ghost, a protagonist's indecision about taking his revenge, and, of course, using the staging of a play as a means of achieving that revenge an innovation that Catherine Eisenman Mouse says is probably Kidd's invention. But a much earlier Shakespeare play, Titus Andronicus, is perhaps closer in spirit to the Spanish tragedy. It is much more violent, for one thing. The revenger Titus is a father, not a son. And the villain Aaron is similarly Machiavellian to Kidd's villain, Lorenzo. Also, the play is set in Rome, so it shares that mythological backdrop we've already seen in the Spanish tragedy. Now, Titus Andronicus's revenge story features, unforgettably, people being eaten in a pie, a riff on the classical story of Thyestes, which, incidentally, Seneca had adapted for the stage. And while there is no people eating people in the Spanish tragedy, there is a rich tradition of cannibalism in revenge drama. It's tempting to explain this tradition as a reaction to the unstoppable messiness of revenge, as the cycles of retribution spill out and proliferate, the gut reaction is to stop that revenge by having it consume itself, to tie it in a knot, have it eat its own tail. And while there is no actual act of cannibalism in the Spanish tragedy, I think we still see that impulse. I think we see cannibalism implied when revenge has his line about Andrea eventually getting his satisfaction when the corn is green. He uses a harvest metaphor. You, you can't eat until the corn is ripe. Only a few lines before Andrea talks about passing through his wounds, he says, Valor drew me into danger's mouth. And then, of course, we have the near cannibalistic act of Hieronimo biting out his own tongue. Hard to think of a more brutal signifier of the failure of language than that. The intensity of Hieronimo's sorrow is such that he can't articulate it. 
As he says, my grief no heart, my thoughts no tongue can tell. Interestingly, in Hieronimo's play within a play at the end, the king reads that Hieronimo wrote the play in sundry languages. Once the killings have been done, Hieronimo apparently abandons the script and says, here break we off our sundry languages and thus conclude I in our vulgar tongue. In some productions, the play within a play is indeed performed in a foreign language, and it's interesting to wonder whether this was the case in its original performances. Michael Hathaway has suggested that one of Kidd's great fascinations was for memorable speech rhythms and cadence, and it is possible that he was trying to see whether he could employ a theatre language that would, to the unlettered at least, communicate by mere sound. Kidd's use of silence is also worth paying attention to. Striking moments of silence on stage can be missed entirely in reading the play. We might forget, for example, that Revenge and Andrea are watching the play with us in silence. In fact, Revenge falls asleep at one point. Awoken by the urgent Andrea, he says, Behold, Andrea, for an instance how revenge hath slept, and then imagine thou what tis to be subject to destiny. Kidd repeatedly draws attention to the fact that events proceed invisibly and wordlessly, that even as revenge sleeps, he is soliciting souls. After Belle Imperia declares her love for him, doomed Horatio says, The less I speak, the more I meditate. Imagining the pleasures and dangers that this love will bring is more than Horatio can put into words, just as the impact of Horatio's brutal murder will prove more than his father can put into words. In fact, Hieronimo spends the interval between the discovery of Horatio's body and the climactic revenge attempting to articulate his trauma. But just as his wife Isabella is reduced to running lunatic, cutting down the branches of the fatal pine where she found her son hanged, Hieronimo cannot make sense of his loss either. Their attempts to do so are read by the other characters as madness. Jonas A. Barish has written that in the tension between speech and act lies much of the tragic force of the plot. Hieronimo is failed by the law and by his language, just as we have seen him try to force his grief into comprehension, after he has taken his revenge, the king demands he explain himself. Why speakst thou not, says the king? To which Hieronimo responds, What lesser liberty can kings afford than harmless silence? Then afford it me. Sufficeth I may not, nor I will not tell thee. But the king waves him off. Fetch forth the torches. Traitor as thou art, I'll make thee tell. Here, Hieronimo is being denied the legal right to remain silent. Like the members of the Privy Council mentioned in the introduction to the podcast, the king intends to torture him into talking. But Hieronimo denies his would-be torturer with silence by biting out his own tongue and then by committing suicide, leaving the king with the incomprehensible vision of three murdered relatives. Like the murder of Horatio, there will be no explanation for him. Diane K. Jakaki has written, The riveting nature of Horatio's death is not as strong on the page, primarily because it takes place between the lines. It's almost as if, like Hieronimo, the text itself can't quite account for Horatio's death. Unpunished, it evades the letter of the law. And without Hieronimo's vengeance, it will go unrecorded. Kidd expresses functional relationships as bonded in word and action. Horatio declares how the birds record by night for joy that Bellimperia sits in sight. To which Bellimperia flirtatiously reposts, 
No Cupid counterfeits the nightingale to frame sweet music to Horatio's tale. Here the two exchange symmetrical phrases, a stylistic device known as stichomythia. Their back and forth proceeds, If Cupid sing, then Venus is not far. I thou art Venus, or some fairer star. If I be Venus, thou must needs be Mars, and where Mars reigneth, there must needs be wars. Then thus begin our wars, says Horatio. Put forth thy hand, that it may combat with my ruder hand. Set forth thy foot to try the push of mine, says Belimperia. But first my looks shall combat against thine. Then ward thyself, I dart this kiss at thee. Thus I retort the dart thou threwest at me. Jonas A. Barish writes of this back and forth that the language dictates physical gesture nearly line by line. The governing analogy between love and war completes itself in a series of bodily movements. The hand, the foot, the lips, the glance of each lover advance with ceremonious gravity to be parried by their counterparts from the other, just as the sallies of the Portingale troops were repulsed by the counter-assaults of the Spaniards. He's talking there about Don Andrea's account of the war right at the start of the play. In Bellimperia and Horatio's sticker-mythic interchange, balance is maintained until they are startled by the entrance of the murderers. In the opening account of the battle, the waves of assaults go back and forth almost like the sea, and victory is to neither part inclined until the entry of Don Andrea, with his brave lanciers made so great a breach. So the entrance of the character who sets the whole revenge cycle in motion is the one that first upsets this verbal balance. When the world ceases to function, the symmetry of the verse disappears, as can be heard in Hieronimo's famous soliloquy. O oh, eyes, no eyes, but fountains fraught with tears. O oh, life, no life, but lively form of death. O oh, world, no world, but mass of public wrongs, confused and filled with murder and misdeeds. O oh, sacred heavens, if this unhallowed deed if this inhuman and barbarous attempt, if this incomparable murder thus of mine, but now no more my son, shall unrevealed and unrevenged pass, how should we term your dealings to be just, if you unjustly deal with those that in your justice trust? The night, sad secretary to my moans, with direful visions wakes my vexed soul, and with the wounds of my distressful son solicits me for notice of his death. The ugly fiends do sally forth of hell and frame my steps to unfrequented paths and fear my heart with fierce, inflamed thoughts. Michael Neal, writing about how the play violently disrupts its stately rhetorical norms, says that here, as the old man's distress grows, the patterning becomes less conspicuous and the iambic rhythms more agitated while the rush of Hieronimo's emotion begins to push across the line endings until it is checked by the imposition of a rhymed couplet. Though even here the four extra syllables of line 11 suggest the fragility of this formal restraint. So even though there's a rhyme here with just trust, what Neil is saying is that Kidd is writing in a way that sounds more spontaneous, more improvised, breaking out of the eyes, no eyes formulation and speaking in a kind of rush of emotion. In Horatio's fleeting uh, imagined happiness, the birds, he says, record by night the beauty of Bel Imperia. Here we have a vision of peacefulness, all is accounted for. Uh, by contrast, in the speech I've just 
Quoted, Hieronimo says, The night, sad secretary to my moans, With direful visions wakes my vexed soul, And with the wounds of my distressful son Solicits me for notice of his death. There is a slightly obsessive theme with recording. Here we have this strange image of the knight, pictured as a neglected secretary, waking Hieronimo and demanding he dictate his notice of Horatio's death. But instead of defining his situation, all he can do is cancel definitions. O oh eyes, no eyes. O oh life, no life. His grief is so extreme that language is incapable of expressing it. Uh, just quickly, some other similarities to early Shakespeare plays, ones that we've talked about before on the podcast. As mentioned in reference to Titus Andronicus, both writers were influenced by Seneca. And Philip Edwards has described Kidd's Roman borrowings as a deliberate attempt to fuse the two worlds of tragedy, classical and popular, thus familiarising the elevated and elevating the familiar. In Shakespeare's early history plays, we see long cycles of revenge play out down the Plantagenet line. Revenge is said 20 times in the third part of Henry VI. And in the second part of Henry IV, we have the figure of Rumour opening the play. Running before King Harry's victory, he says, travelling faster than truth. Here in the Spanish tragedy, the character of Alexandro says, evil news fly faster still than good. Hieronimo says at one point, My son, and what's a son? A thing begot, within a pair of minutes thereabout, a lump bred up in darkness. Sounding more than a little like how the future Richard III is described in the second part of Henry VI. Heap of wrath, foul, indigested lump. Shakespeare's language here may have been taken from Kidd, or perhaps both took from Arthur Golding's translation of Metamorphoses, also known as Shakespeare's Ovid. There, in the creation story, Golding writes of chaos, a huge, rude heap, and nothing else but even, a heavy lump and clotted clod, of seeds together driven, of things at strife among themselves, for want of order due. And in relation to, to Henry VI, I, I noticed there's, there's a lot, bo both in both plays, there is a, a lot of this apocalyptic returning to chaos imagery, uh, uh, a lump bred up in darkness. Um, oh, world, no world, but mass of public wrongs. Which is it reminds me of how Gloucester is described uh, before becoming Richard III, and also the the, the sort of creation story and metamorphoses that, that Shakespeare seems to quote quite a lot. Does this suggest that someone's borrowing from each other, or or that Kidd and Shakespeare might have had similar reading tastes? That's interesting. I I was thinking you mentioned the name Gloucester. There, I was thinking of a different Gloucester. Uh, in, in King Lear many years later, um, and that kind of Job-like element of Shakespeare's great tragedy, King Lear, um, and returning to an almost primordial state of being. Uh, I think I'm thinking of a, a passage from the book of Job, naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. Um, but, but going back to, to earlier in, in, in Shakespeare's career, you mentioned reading material. I think most playwrights uh, of the Elizabethan period were, were drawing from similar materials in the context of the narrow and um, intensely competitive world uh, of the commercial stage. I think they were constantly seeking stories to tell in new and, and innovative ways. Uh, and Kidd and Shakespeare mm. both had grammar school education. So, so Kidd attended Merchant Taylor's School, uh, which um, also boasted such alumni as uh, Thomas Lodge, 
uh, Lancelot Andrews and, and Edmund Spencer, while, while Shakespeare went to King Edward's school in Stratford-upon-Avon. So they would have both remembered, for instance, their, their Ovid's um, from schoolboy studies. We, we see a lot of influence, uh, Ovidian influences in, in Shakespeare's work, particularly his, his earlier plays. Um, and in, in kids' closet drama, Cornelia, uh, the eponymous character's recollection of the grief of Venus over the dead body of Adonis transformed into a rose, derives from Ovid's Metamorphoses as the, um, uh, the editor of, of the 1901 edition of Thomas Kidd's works pointed out in 1901. And Cornelia, mm. in fact, concludes with a colophon quoting uh, Metamorphoses. Uh, and Frederick S. Bowers also pointed out that the marginal notes added by Kidd uh, in Kidd's pamphlet, uh, it's, a, it's a translation of an Italian work by Torquato Tasso, uh, The Householder's Philosophy, uh, includes a line from Ovid. So, so there's just one example of you know, similar reading materials, um, essentially because playwrights were seeking to draw from uh, similar sources or potentially because they had similar grammar school educations. But I think the, the correspondences you, you picked up on I, I think they're more than, I think it's more than a case of uh, both writers having similar reading takes. So, so I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment uh, with, the, with the working title, Shakespeare's Tutor, uh, The Influence of Thomas Kidd. And in that book, I mean, I've been working on it for, for several years, um, as I've been working on Kidd for, for, for several years, uh, Kidd and Shakespeare's relationship. And in the book, I, I show that Shakespeare borrowed excessively from kids. So, so not just in terms of uh, shared phraseology, uh, but also dramaturgy, um, Shakespeare's use of feminine endings, if, if you'll forgive the, uh, the rather sexist term there for um, mm. verse lines concluding in, in extra unaccented syllables. Uh, Shakespeare and Kidd both shared a, a, a propensity for compound adjectives. Uh, so Kidd has such examples in his plays as gold abounding and, and, and cloud compacted. And, and I actually think that Shakespeare's debts to Kidd are uh, equal, if not deeper, uh, than his, his debts to, to Christopher Marlowe on, which much more uh, has, has been written. So I think a, a proper understanding of Kidd's influence on Shakespeare's early work actually has the potential to, to revolutionise our understanding of Shakespeare's dramatic development. And, and those influences are most tangible, most patent in his earliest works, like um, Henry VI, part three, for instance, the, the example you gave there, Ash. The Spanish tragedy has a terrific standout moment of gallows humour, as on the day of his execution, the character of Pedringano is awaiting his promised pardon from Lorenzo. And the hangman asks him, come, are you ready? I pray, sir, dispatch, the day goes away. To which Pedragano responds, what, do you hang by the hour? Uh, Kit may have had a contemporary inspiration for this sequence. As Michael Neal writes, he could be remembering a particularly scandalous episode in which Elizabeth's favourite, the Earl of Leicester, ensured the execution of an inconvenient accomplice while pretending to work for his release. A piece of gentleman-like knavery mirrored in the trick by which Lorenzo consigns the gullible Pedragano to his death. The reason I bring up the hang-by-the-hour gag is to highlight the comedic side of the play. Pedringano is denied his pardon. Expecting deliverance, Lorenzo instead sends a boy with an empty box. 
So Pedrangano is hanged, or turned off, as it is described in the play. The blunt and blundering mechanism of the law operates like farce, turning sane characters like Hieronimo into incomprehensible instruments of revenge. Stephen Justice has written that Hieronimo's tragedy is not so much that of a man who makes the wrong choice as that of a man to whom the right choice is unavailable. A tragedy it most certainly is, but it is one characterised, like farce, by miscommunication, arbitrary and extreme violence, and the subjugation of sanity by overwhelming emotion. T. McKilden has written that Kidd's imaginative energies are devoted not to the exploration of a moral problem, but to a psychic upheaval in which the protagonist oscillates between the poles of his being until his darkest instincts take complete control, silencing his noble self or using it as their instrument. The bleak joke of the empty box delivered to Pendragano has been read by Frank Ardolino as a kind of reverse Pandora's box, where meaninglessness comes in the form of nothing instead of everything. This is what Hieronimo learns. He cannot put his grief into words. It has no expression. Margaret Lamb has written that the primary impact of the play is not moral or aesthetic, but metaphysical. The message is an image of the world. It is so. This chaos is not only inside Hieronimo, he makes the entire court feel what he feels. Then they know, at last. Then he need not bother to speak. Words express moral ideas and so are useless. Kid shows the unspeakable. If the Marshall show trial is a travesty of justice, that is because justice is a travesty. I think Kid got there first with, with so many things. Um, so you mentioned gallows humour. Uh, uh, quite literally. So, so black comedy is is very prevalent in in Shakespeare's work. So, so he kind of goes against uh, your neoclassical traditions there in in blending humour and um, uh, and tragic matter. Uh, and I and I think yeah. you, you really see those influences in his roommate Marlowe's plays, um, which, which seem to post date uh, kids' works. So, and of course, Shakespeare uh, makes optimum use of, of blending. Uh, comic and tragic material. Um, I, I think Kid actually exhibits something of a an intolerance of, of tidy genre definitions. It, it was a very experimental uh, period. We, we tend to think of Elizabethan drama as quite old school and, and fustian and and high tragedy, but but you know, playwrights were drawing from from uh, multiple tales to tell tell existing stories in new and innovative ways and, and they were they were experimenting with with generic paradigms and and I, I think that the one thing that Kidd is definitely credited with is is the refinement of Seneca uh, for the Elizabethan stage uh, so so we've got the the Roman tragedy and Lucius Aeneas Seneca uh, who who was responsible for, for such great tragedies as the madness of Hercules, uh, the Phoenician women, uh, Agamemnon. Uh, and Kidd demonstrably draws from, from Seneca elements that had been previously seen in, in courtly English tragedies in particular, I think. Um, mm. You know, like your, your ghosts crying for revenge, uh, your bloody <laughs> violence, you know, the, that kind of thing. But I think what... Mm. What Kid does especially cleverly, so something that really interests me, is that he he places special emphasis on that idea of providentialism. So Seneca's dramas very much adhere to a, a providential design, uh, the idea that um, events in the play are divinely ordered, and that this order, when when sensitively interpreted, 
uh, reveals the divine or, or, or supernatural will. And many early modern folk, of course, were firm believers in divine providence, um, maybe because of the, the growing Calvinism uh, of the era. And of, of course, Shakespeare uh, follows, follows Kidd in incorporating Senecan elements into his, into his dramas, but particularly his, his early history plays, um, especially Richard III's, which uh, a scholar named William Wells actually called a study uh, in Kidian methods, Shakespeare's Richard III. Mm. And that idea that, that divine forces have a say in uh, historical events really tallies with, with Shakespeare's chronicle sources uh, for, his, for his history plays. And, and you know, the idea of the, the Tudor myth uh, and that kind of thing. So I, I, I would suggest that Shakespeare recognized uh, through through kids' works, an opportunity to blend Roman tragedy uh, with with English history, and that emphasis that the kid places on on providentialism, just just to think about these playwrights in terms of uh, dramaturgy and, and dramatic structure, uh, I, I think that emphasis deeply uh, impacted the structure of the Spanish tragedy. So in in kids' play, you've got the ghost of Andrea. Uh, and the allegorical figure of revenge serving for chorus uh, in this tragedy. Uh, and they divide the play's acts with, with commentary on the action, which very much uh, follows um, Seneca's uh, divisions of, of acts separated by choruses. And mm. I, I think the kids' device of having uh, the revenge uh, and the ghost of Andrea watch over events follows that the Senecan chorus in that it casts a shadow of fatality uh, over the unwitting characters in the play. And I, I think that Shakespeare recognized the, the artistry uh, of kids' dramatic paradigms, especially that um, voyeuristic, I can't think of a better word for it really, uh, voyeuristic framing device, which we also see in um, you know, very early Shakespeare comedy, potentially Shakespeare's earliest comedy, The Tame of the Shrew, uh, with the induction, you've got Christopher Sly uh, watching, yeah. watching the, the play within a play, of course. Um, you know, you always think of Midsummer Night's Dream or maybe Love's Labour's Lost or, or Hamlet with plays within plays, but most of the action of The Tame of the Shrew is, is, is a play within a play. And that, that induction with Sly uh, actually uh, contains a, a number of lines from kids' plays, which, which are clearly parodic, uh, like, go by, go by. Um, Saint Hieronymy, I, I think the line is, which is, you know, if you read the Spanish tragedy, of all the lines that um, that leap out to you, I don't think go by, go by necessarily would, but there seems to have been something about that line that um, just made it fair game for, for parody and satire. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know if, if the actor playing Hieronymo must have done uh, something, something interesting with it, you know, some kind of gesture. Um, some wild delivery. Some some kind of just yeah batshit delivery with that line maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, but but talking about kids' complex dramatic structure, I, I think kids often considered to be uh, a rhetorical dramatist, and I think his his language is very rhetorical. I, I, I think uh, he was more uh, proficient in terms of rhetoric than than a lot of contemporaries like your George Peels, for instance. Um, or, or your Robert Greens, actually, uh, who, whose plays become more rhetorically charged as he progresses through through his short um, uh, dramatic writing career. But I, I think 
that complexity of dramatic structure is, is complemented in plays like the Spanish tragedy by ornate verse. So I'll, I'll give you some examples. You've got that moment. You've got that moment in which um, kid stages Balthazar's unwelcome advances towards Bell Imperia, um, the, the heroine of, of, of kids play. Uh, and here, mm. kid combines your classical drama with the traditions of Renaissance love poetry. I'm quoting Bart Banez there, uh, actually. And, and mm. we can see this in the rapid fire, um, single line, machine gun-like, stichomythic exchanges between Balthazar, the, the, the Prince of Porcingale, and Bel Imperia. So Balthazar asks, what if conceits have laid my heart to gauge? And Bel Imperia responds, pray that you borrowed and recover it. Uh, to which Balthazar says, I die if it return from whence it lies, incredibly wet blanket line there. Um, and and Bel Imperia says, a heartless man and live, a miracle. So you've got this, this witty single line dialogue there. And, and what I, I've discovered reading kids' plays is that he often disrupts the, the, these kind of verbal fencing um, jewels with uh, the interposition of a spectatorial third character. Um, just, just as supernatural forces often intervene in the outcomes of, of kids' plays. So Kid also reveals his talent for um, transforming ancient devices by making the, the Seneca and Stichomythia the vehicle for Horatio and Bel Imperia's amorous fence uh, in Act Two, Scene Two. So Bel Imperia mm. turns to uh, Horatio, a very romantic, tender scene, uh, and says, but whereon dost thou chiefly meditate? Uh, to which Horatio, uh, Hieronymo's son, says, on dangers past and, and pleasures to ensue. So, you know, it all seems well here, but then you've got Balthazar, uh, this this boyeristic villain puncturing uh, their, their exchanges with asides to the audience. So Balthazar says on pleasures past and dangers to ensue. So so you've got Balthazar and Lorenzo actually, the the, the villain of the play. You've got those two characters bla breaking up the lovers' discourse with a series of villainous asides. So you've got kids' ornate verse which is very much running uh, in tandem with elaborate multi-layered stage action in that the, the audience, we as audience members um, or, or, or contemporary audiences are watching Revenge and the Ghost of Andrea who are watching the villains uh, who in turn watch the, the lovers in this play. Now, scholars mm. like Anne Thompson have pointed out that in The Taming of the Shrew, uh, in Act 4, Scene 2, you, you've got a moment in which Hortensio and Tranio overhear the courtship of uh, Lucentio and Bianca. Uh, and Thompson notes that this is strikingly similar to Act 2, Scene 2, uh, when Balthazar uh, and, and Lorenzo listen in on Horatio uh, and, and Bel Imperia. So you, so you see a debt in, in The Tame of the Shoe there, I think, in that multi-pattern staging. Uh, and I, I think that Shakespeare's fusion of, of love poetry with, with Stichomythia, which is more traditionally associated with tragedy, specifically um, Senecan tragedy. Uh, th this is something we also see in Richard III, of course, uh, where, when Richard woos Anne uh, most famously, you know, was ever woman in, in, in that manner wooed. Um, mm. and, and I think that Shakespeare's multi-pattern staging 
uh, I, I think that owes a great uh, debt to Kidd. This late conflict mentioned by Andrea at the start of the play refers to the Spanish conquest and annexation of Portugal that took place between 1580 and 1582. The reason some scholars have dated the play specifically to 1587 is that the year that followed was the year of the Spanish Armada, 1588, which the play makes no reference to, something critics deem pretty much unthinkable in a play about Spain. Given that England and Spain were at war, the play is quite restrained in its Hispanophobia. There's nothing like the amount of anti-Scots or anti-French rhetoric found in Shakespeare's history plays. Although Kidd does get in a somewhat gratuitous reference to what a sound thrashing the English gave both Spain and Portugal in centuries gone by. Still, this is less than what we would expect, considering contemporary international relations. In an age where, as Eugene Hill has written, a Spanish tragedy implied an English comedy. Perhaps the play functioned as both, a tragedy the audience could walk away from feeling cheered. Although modern productions tend to interpret Belle Imperia as a victim, some have seen her as an embodiment of the Spanish Empire. Eric Griffin has written that rather than possessing her one by one, each of the play's dons, first Andrea, then Horatio, next Balthazar, and finally even Hieronimo, are possessed by Belle Imperia. The argument of Kidd's tragedy suggests, writes Griffin, that there is something perilously seductive about his imperial mistress's charms. As her name indicates, Belle Imperia is a double, related both to bellum, or war, and to bell, or beauty. Uh, was it a controversial time to stage a play set in Spain and with a, with a Spanish cast? I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, how, how controversial it would be. I mean, thinking of that dating of the Spanish tragedy, um, 1587, that, uh, and like I said, it could be earlier. I don't think any scholar would be inclined to date the play later, which might surprise some listeners. Um, I think that's important. I mean, firstly, in setting the play in Spain, Kidd is transporting his, his audiences to a more exotic world than early modern London. Um, <laughs> uh, so and I, I think here you've got Kidd holding up a mirror uh, to contemporary society. Um, but I think it's a, it's a distorted mirror because of that geographical distance. And, and this, of course, is, is something we see in so many revenge tragedies. Uh, set in Spain or, or, or Italy or whatnot by the likes of Shakespeare uh, and, and uh, the likes of John Webster as well, of course. So in, in doing that, in, in, in setting your play in a distant location, playwrights can, you know, they can criticise the court, uh, they can essentially criticise the, the monarchy uh, because they, you know, they, they don't adhere to, to Protestant England. Um, and, and I imagine that audiences would respond slightly differently to, to kids' play, depending on whether they were seeing the play pre or, or post-Spanish Armada, um, which occurred in July to August 1588, of course. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got moments of jingoism uh, in, in kids' play. Kid, kid can be quite um, shameless, actually, in, in, uh, in the patriotism of, of his plays. Uh, you, you've got a moment where... Um, Geronimo gives an account of English history and, and Kid draws from the convention of the, um, the, the dumb show. And I, and I imagine moments like that might have resonated a bit more after the English Protestant victory. I mean, we, we know very little about um, the performance records of the Spanish tragedy 
preceding its entry in the stationers register in 1592 but we know it was a huge hit um post armada of course so it seems it seems to have resonated with elizabethan audiences uh, after the armada um and there's no indication that it was it was like your isle of dogs or your game of chess or you know the, those controversial plays that um that, that more or less got banned it seems to have been a very accessible play like you know, it, it was a hit so so i don't get a sense that it was a, a controversial text because of that um setting reflecting on his triumph over portugal the spanish king declares blessed be heaven and guider of the heavens from whose fair influence such justice flows a sentiment that would be widely shared by kids' audience in England, who not only believed that God would take their country's side in the fight against Spain, but, as Ronald Browd has written, step in and reveal the identity of criminals in unsolved legal cases. A belief that things will, in effect, work themselves out, that regardless of how stark things look, the righteous will prevail, is expressed in conventional terms by Isabella. Time is the author of both truth and right, and time will bring this treachery to light. The phrase was a common formulation. In the wake of a failed plot to kill the Queen in 1586, a writer signing himself T.K., possibly but not necessarily Thomas Kidd, as Browd writes, employed the time-truth-right formula to draw a moral from the abortive attempt to assassinate Elizabeth. Time trieth truth, and truth hath treason tripped. The belief in time as the author of truth and right would have been a comfort to Protestant England under threat from Catholic Spain. Like Andrea, they had to content themselves to suffer the ripening of the corn. And the purgatorial watching of the play by Andrea is particularly interesting in the light of the contemporary religious crisis. Tom Rutter, describing the impact of the Protestant rejection of the doctrine of purgatory, writes that in dismissing this doctrine as unbiblical, Protestant theologians changed the relationship between the living and the dead to traumatic effect. The dead were now to be considered as immutably located either in heaven or in hell, not in any third place where the prayers of the living might diminish their sufferings. We've already talked about how Kidd effectively dramatises a failure of language. Where words prevail not, violence prevails, says Lorenzo. In moments where the failure of language is expressed most starkly, such as when Hieronimo tears papers with his teeth, Michael Neal has identified a pattern of biblical allusions that provides a mythic underpinning for the action. These involve the Genesis story of the Tower of Babel. Imagined as a second fall of mankind, it accounts for humanity's woeful history of internecine strife in terms of the curse of linguistic division. Frank Ardolino has written that on the subtextual level, the Spanish tragedy presents the defeat of Babylon slash Spain, which is symbolically represented in the revenge playlet. Hieronimo says, Now shall I see the fall of Babylon, wrought by the heavens in this confusion. As Ardolino writes, contemporary Protestant apologetics conflated Spain under Philip II with Babylon, the whore of Babylon and the Antichrist. Kidd has presented the Spanish tragedy, the defeat of Spain by England. Babylon was of course known for its hanging gardens, and the manner in which Horatio is hanged in his parents' arbour is reminiscent not only of the crucifixion, but of famous biblical betrayals that take place in gardens, those of Eden and Gethsemane. As he is stabbed, Horatio cries out, What, will you murder me? And Lorenzo replies, I, thus and thus, these are the fruits of love. 
As Michael Neal comments of this, Lorenzo plays blasphemously with a familiar image of Christ's sacrifice, in which the fruit of love, hanging on the tree of crucifixion, cancels out the sinful legacy of Genesis's forbidden fruit. Catherine Goodland has highlighted an interesting further allusion in this scene to the mystery cycles. In the York crucifixion, four soldiers repeat the word height as they complain about their orders to raise Jesus high for people to see. As Goodland says, following the murder, Lorenzo looks up at Horatio's lifeless body and quips, although his life was still ambitious proud, yet is he at the highest now he is dead. In its cruel wit, he evokes the fixation on the height of the cross in the mysteries, which may have suggested it to Kidd. The Babylonian parallels continue after Horatio's death, becoming even more distinct when Isabella, his mother, running lunatic, destroys the bower where her son was hanged, saying, fruitless forever may this garden be, seemingly referencing the destruction of the Babylonian gardens. Meanwhile, Balthasar, Michael Neal tells us, was the common Elizabethan name for Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon. For kids' audience, Neal writes, this recollection of divine retribution against the enemies of God's chosen people will have had powerful political resonances. For the destruction of Babylon, the mother of whoredom, was taken by Protestants to foreshadow the destruction of that scourge of true religion, papal Rome, the whore of Babylon herself. Transforming, therefore, the Spanish tragedy from a drama of personal revenge into an exercise in theatrical prophecy, announcing the apocalyptic destruction of a self-proclaimed Catholic monarchy. Andrea awaits his personal revenge, but the audience watching kids play were waiting for an even greener corn to ripen, for an even greater treason to be triumph by time. As Ronald Browd has written, the disaster which befalls Kid Spain is representative of the doom awaiting all nations in which the laws of God are ignored. We, we mentioned some of the resemblances between uh, Kid and, and Shakespeare, but his, his protagonist, Hieronimo, seems quite unlike um, Shakespeare's tr tragic protagonists anyway, in being a sort of middle class, uh, a civil servant, um, not a prince or a you know a leader like Shakespeare's often are is he a, a typical kid protagonist do you know what? I, I absolutely love that question Ash because like I said I, I've been studying um kid and, and Shakespeare's relationship for for several years and I, I've got to be honest I've never quite thought of Hieronimo as something of a a, a domestic tragic figure um by, by which I mean, you know, he, he's a non-aristocratic personage, centre stage uh, in a tragic play. But you know what? You're, you're absolutely right. Um, he kind of anticipates that the, the likes of tragic figures like Thomas, uh, uh, Thomas Arden in, in Arden of Faversham, doesn't he? In, in terms of um, he's the tragic protagonist, but he's not a, a king or, or a prince. Uh, he, he's, the, he's the knight marshal of Spain. Uh, thinking of kids' other plays... You've got the Turkish tragedy, uh, Solomon and, and Poseidon, in, in which uh, Kid very much expands the um, play within a play uh, drawn from um, Henry Wotton's uh, Cupid's Cortels, uh, Solomon and Poseidon. Um, the, 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 the tragic protagonist in that play is a chap named Erastus, and he's the, mm. the knight of Rhodes. So, so again, you know, he's not a, a, a king or, or an emperor. Uh, and just thinking, in terms of, because we're kind of talking about class, 
uh, and I also like to think about the language of, of class. Um, and, and in terms of its language, the Spanish tragedy is, is very much a mixture of your heightened rhetoric, um, that, that sort of uh, dignified poetic verse that, that we associate with, with high tragedy and, and, and royal figures, um, be they protagonists or, or antagonists, but, but also choppy dialogue akin to what audiences might hear in the streets of London, I think. So mm. I, I, I'm inclined to say that kids' plays are, uh, you know, they, they've been criticised for being bombastic and, and, and um, kid being more of a rhetoric, rhetorician or rhetorician. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a word there. Uh, rather than... I'm not sure which it is, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to chance my arm and it must be one of them. Um, you, you said both, so I could just pick one in the edit. I'll look it up. <laughs> but he, he's considered to be more of a um, rhetorician than, than a poet necessarily. Um, mm. But I, I think kids' plays, even, even the Spanish tragedy, which is you know his, his earlier surviving play, I, th I think they reveal a real fluidity in terms of linguistic register uh, mm. which a wide range of, uh, of dramatic voices are, um, uh, are conveyed. One of the reasons that the Elizabethans expected time to be the author of right was that, in the words of Ronald Browd, they were well aware that their police and courts were all too fallible. They knew that vengeance visited by due process of law was the exception rather than the rule. The character of Hieronimo would bring certain connotations of this. As Timothy A. Turner has said, in the play Hieronimo is a knight marshal, an office Elizabethan audience members would have associated with martial law and torture. It is rather curious that his duties also seem to cover the staging of plays. It is Hieronimo who arranges the mask at the start of the play, which in a rather unlikely way trumpets the success of English conquerors of yore, like John of Gaunt. Then again, perhaps Kidd's own experience at the hands of state torturers proves that their respective lines of work weren't that far apart. Imprisoned, the playwright wrote to the Lord Keeper, John Puckering, that he hoped those who falsely reported him are questioned, that the state might break open their lewd designs and see into the truth. Their lives, he says, should be examined and ripped up effectually. Charles Nicholl has written that there are echoes of the torture chamber in his choice of words. Similarly, there are echoes of the theatre in Lorenzo's scheming. I lay the plot, he says, he prosecutes the point. When Hieronimo achieves his revenge, he announces to the audience, who still think that the play is only a play, haply you think, but bootless are your thoughts, that this is fabulously counterfeit, and that we do as all tragedians do, to die today for fashioning our scene, and in a minute, starting up again. Surely any actor delivering these lines is hoping to provoke some anxiety in their audience about the health of his castmates. Jonathan Bate has written that by casting revenge in the form of an elaborate public spectacle, the drama reveals that the public performance known as the law is also a form of revenge action. Indeed, on the way to the theatre, some of Kidd's audience might well have had a stark reminder of the public spectacle of this kind of revenge action. As they crossed London Bridge, they may well have seen heads mounted on spikes. Molly Smith has written that during Elizabeth's reign, 6,160 victims were hanged at Tyburn, and Elizabethans were certainly quite familiar with the spectacle of the hanged body and the disemboweled and quartered corpse. 
In kids' treatment of the body as spectacle, we witness most vividly the earliest coalescence of the theatrical and punitive modes in Elizabethan England. Uh, unlike Geronimo, uh, Lorenzo seems very much like uh, a Shakespearean villain. He's delicious a delicious bastard really um <laughs> a sort of <laughs> an, a, a natural performer he seems right out of the shakespeare rule book in being a bit of an actor um mm. who is who is relishing his part um and he and he he talks in that very sort of self-aware way i lay the plot i set the trap um and in fact, the, the play is full of characters who are sort of vying to author and act the play. The words author and act crop up again and again. Mm. Um, it, it almost feels like someone's they're trying to wrestle for control of it. Um, how, how radical was Kid being in, in writing sort of such self-aware drama? Because it's another thing that we, we accredit Shakespeare for uh, as being revolutionary and, br and brilliant. But, you know, here it is again, mm. um, years before. In kids, in kids. In kids. That, that's the point of of, uh, of my argument, really, is I really don't think um, people recognise just how influential Kid was on, on, on Shakespeare's um, dramaturgy um, and mm. so many other writers as well. Your, your Marlowe's, your Greens are, are great debts to, to kids. I mean, Lucas Earn... Uh, calls Lorenzo the original Machiavellian villain in Elizabethan drama. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Shakespeare and, and a great many other writers owe another debt to Kid there. Um, and what I found interesting recently while, while working on, on my book was um, that Lorenzo's uh, speeches seem to have been at the forefront of Shakespeare's mind when he was writing The Taming of the Shrew. Which is, <laughs> which is an odd relationship. You, know, you, don't, you don't think, uh, oh, Lorenzo, oh, Taming of the Shrew, Petruchio, or whatnot. Um, but but there's, a, there's a database of all shared phrases between plays of the period uh, called collocations and engrams, um, which was developed by a, a colleague of mine named Purvez Risby. And in that database, you've got uh, unique phrases by which I mean they're not found in any other play in that uh, corpus of, I think it's 527 plays of, of the period um, from the date 1552 to 1657. Um, and you've got nine phrases uh, between the Spanish tragedy and the Tame of the Shrew that can't be found anywhere else in drama of the period. Uh, and five of those nine phrases are found in Lorenzo's speeches. You, you know, if you were just thinking in terms of line count, you might expect more from Hieronimo or, or whatever. Um, so, so I think the the evidence really suggests that Shakespeare was was influenced by Lorenzo in particular. Um, I don't think we can discount the possibility that Shakespeare might have played Lorenzo. Um, mm. I haven't I haven't um, discovered any evidence in favour of that, but but I don't think there's necessarily any reason to uh, to discount it. Uh, and when we're talking about Kid as being um, a self-aware dramatist, well, you know, you can really see that self-awareness in the structure of the Spanish tragedy, where you've got uh, you've got the audience watching Revenge and the Ghost of Andrea uh, with Revenge Revenge performing something of a, a playwright duty. I think uh, he, he's he's a, he's a cosmic playwright. Really, um, he, he's he's going to write that tragic ending 
uh, for audiences. Uh, and those two figures in turn watch the villainous voyeurs, as I call them in this play, who in turn watch the lovers in those scenes like act two, scene two I mentioned earlier. Um, and then all of this is capped off by a play within a play that, that anticipates the use of that device for revenge purposes, specifically uh, in Hamlet. Uh, and that kind of multi-patterned um, staging and um, that, that self-awareness, that meta-theatricality um, of the Spanish tragedy and other kid plays is more sophisticated than, than anything I've seen in, in the plays of Marlowe or Green or, or George Peel or, or, or Thomas Lodge. Secretly watching Bellimperia and Horatio express their love for one another, Baltasar says, O oh, sleep mine eyes, see not my love profaned, be deaf my ears, hear not my discontent. Die, heart, another joys what thou deservest. Meanwhile, his accomplice, Lorenzo, says, Watch still mine eyes, to see this love disjoined. Hear still mine ears, to hear them both lament. Live, heart, to joy at fond Horatio's fall. At this point in the play, we are watching two characters, Revenge and Andrea, watching the conspirators, watching the secret lovers. John J. Winkler has commented on this aspect of Kidd's stagecraft, calling it an immensely clever articulation of boxed audiences watching audiences, each reinterpreting the central tale. And again, on these levels of watching, 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 G.K. Hunter has said, at each point in this chain, what seems free will to the individual seems only a predetermined act to the onlookers. Although Baltasar and Lorenzo are both villains, we are quicker to understand Baltasar's response, I think. He can't bear to look at the woman he loves with another man. Lorenzo's response to watch and enjoy, in fact to feast his eyes on this scene, knowing that he's going to kill Horatio, is much less understandable, and downright grim, considering it is his sister that he is watching. But as we too are watching on, we can't totally comfortably dismiss Lorenzo's enjoyment. We would surely be disappointed by a happy rewrite to the end of a play like Romeo and Juliet, and similarly we would be disappointed to have sat down to the Spanish tragedy and see Lorenzo's plan to murder Horatio averted. Kidd raises this uncomfortable topic of enjoyment more than once. Already we have seen revenge bidding Andrea to wait for his satisfaction. One reason Tom Rutter finds it difficult to accept a reading of Andrea's watching the play as a kind of purgatory is, as he writes, that his experience over the course of play is not exactly one of purgation. In the final scene, his ghost lists the killings he has observed of friends and foes alike and comments, these were spectacles to please my soul, expressing a sense of gratification that does not sound very beatific before going on to describe the punishment he anticipates for his enemies in the afterlife. Margaret Lamb has written that one of the most interesting critics of the Spanish tragedy is the playwright who did the editions of 1602. Whoever he was, he makes the painter scene a preview of the terrible end. Hieronimo demands the impossible of art, saying first to this painter that he meets, Draw me five years younger than I am. My wife Isabella standing by me, my sweet son and my hand leaning upon his head. Canst thou draw a murderer? Make me curse, make me rave, make me cry, make me mad, make me well again, make me curse hell, invocate heaven, and in the end, leave me in a trance, and so forth. 
Lamb comments that Hieronimo first wants the impossible happy past, then the moment of horror repeated. Plainly, he wants a moving picture, the play. Why would Hieronimo want this? Surely it's not to savour and memorialise the moment of his deepest despair, but to change himself from participant, from actor in his tragedy, to onlooker, to reduce his involvement in the story and shrink into the audience. David Cutts has written that in Hieronimo's staging of his play, the author ultimately loses control of his creation, and he is displaced by the text of his revenge. I find it tempting to see the Spanish tragedy as a story of craft versus talent, the cunning corruption of justice by Lorenzo, eventually blown away by the artistic revenge of Hieronimo. His creativeness having been signalled by his theatrical allusions, the spontaneous poetry of his language, and his final coup de théâtre. And perhaps Hieronimo was almost right. When he asks for the moving painting in the additional scene, he glimpsed that the right way, perhaps the only way to express what had befallen him, was artistically. But choosing to stage a play and then claim revenge for real signals his failure to realise the potential of art to achieve solace peacefully. Donaby Hamilton has written that the play suggests that it remains within the dramatist's power to cultivate rather than to destroy become a maker who contributes something real to man's ability to endure and to profit from experience. I was, I was trying to sort of follow the, the, you know, the levels of who's watching who, who's watching who. And then towards the end, Hieronimo has a line, which I'll probably bungle, but he says something like, I, I'm going inward um, to get my revenge or something. And it almost lands like a joke. Because it's like, you, you certainly are. We're, we're well down this process of, it's almost like kids saying, you know, I'm going in and in and in and in and in. Well, well he, he writes the play, doesn't he? What, what, here's a line like, in Toledo, there I studied. And, and, he, and he says that he wrote this Solomon of Bethsaida play. So, so he's, uh, he's the playwright um, and he's the, he's the casting director, uh, most fatally. Uh, and it's, you've got that spectacular moment where Horatio's, uh, corpse is revealed uh, behind the discovery space. You can kind of imagine uh, Hieronimo putting a curtain um, back mm. and then biting his own tongue out as well. So uh, that author figure silences um, himself. And then you've got the intervention of the cosmic uh, playwright, as, as I call him, in the figure of revenge. This is something we see in Seneca's tragedies, actually, is that the, the chorus at the beginning of Seneca's dramas uh, are very much serving a choric function. You know, they're, they're just commentating on the play. But as Seneca's dramas uh, progress, they, they tend to get sucked into the tragic vortex uh, of the drama. Uh, and and I, I get the sense that this is, uh, this is something we see in, in uh, kids' play. I mean, Revenge falls asleep earlier in the play. Um, <laughs> and the ghost of Andrea is like, you know, what are you doing, mate? You know, wake up. Uh, this, this is going, you know, really well and I'm not enjoying it. I, you know, I want to see a bloodbath here. Um, so I just think it's fascinating though, those those influences and um, it's a bit like Inception, isn't it? It's the inception of Elizabethan drama. It's got so many layers. Uh, <laughs> and, and you end up asking yourself revenge falling asleep and not really seeming all that um, into it for a lot of, lot of the time. How, how avoidable how how avoidable was it? Is it is it is revenge demanded by the audience, Andrea? Um, and think, can you think of another? Can you think of another choric figure who falls asleep watching a play within a play? You have got Christopher Sly in the Taming of the Shrew. He he's not interested enough in the in the comedy. He falls asleep. So 
Yeah. So you've got Christopher Sly um, performing the same duty as the allegorical figure of revenge. If that's not a stand-up, <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> uh, that brings it to the end of this episode on The Spanish Tragedy by Thomas Kidd. Thank you very much to my special guest for this week, Darren Freebury-Jones. If you'd like to hear more from Darren, uh, I'll not only have my usual extended interview when we talk more about uh, Darren's book, Shakespeare's Tutor. We also recorded another episode on a play by another contemporary of Shakespeare, one that we've never talked about on the podcast before. So whether you're listening on your podcast platform or choice or watching on YouTube, if you'd like to hear more, please hit subscribe and look out for that episode coming out shortly. Until then, happy reading. Thank you.